My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. I have a friend that works in the ministry that is married and already has a three-year-old daughter. It is so adorable to see her as she's just beginning to talk in full sentences. When I go over to her house to meet her, the child is very friendly and actively plays with me. But when I happen to meet her outside for lunch or dinner, she becomes very shy and quiet. When we happen to be at a place with lots of people and people begin to give her unwanted attention, she holds tightly onto her mother and looks straight down, trying not to make any eye contact. There are times that she doesn't even recognize me, when just a day before, we spend all that time playing together at her home. This is why sometimes I try to become friendly with her outside of her house by bribing her with some chocolate. I tell her, I was waiting for you to come so that I can give you this chocolate in a very high voice to get her attention. Then she comes running to me with a huge smile, calling me auntie, giving me a very big hug. But the sad thing is that as soon as she gets the chocolate from me, she runs right back to her mother's arms. When I ask her, do you want another chocolate? She says yes and starts to come to me again. When the chocolate is in my hands, she is constantly smiling and trying to act cute to get and keep my attention. She even gives me hugs and kisses. But as soon as that chocolate is in her hands, she turns her head and runs right back to her mother, not even looking back. I know that snacks such as candy or chocolate are not healthy for young children, but I end up giving her all this just to get that extra attention from her. Something interesting came to mind as I saw how this little girl was behaving. I looked back to how the child was acting in a crowded public place, not even acknowledging that I was alive. As soon as I was holding a piece of chocolate in my hands, she came running to me, calling me auntie, hugging and kissing me. As soon as she had that chocolate in her hands, she turned around and walked away. I began to see myself in this little girl's actions. I began to question if this is how I behaved when I was praying. When I am praying for something that I really need, when I believe that God will answer my prayers, I pray day and night, even participating in fasting prayers to pray to God for my needs. However, as soon as my prayers are answered and I receive the very thing that I had been asking for, I stop praying to God and return to my old ways. I began to think that I was just like the child, only praying to God whenever there was something I needed. It is true that God fills all our needs, but He is not there just to give us all that we need and ask for. The more important thing is that He is our Father and we are His children. That is why our prayers must not be used to ask God for all the things that we just need in our lives. Prayer is a way for us, as God's children, to have a conversation and relationship with our Father. We must pray to God, our Father, to have a conversation and relationship with Him. It should not matter whether our needs are filled or not, 
and whether our prayers have been answered or not. The reason why Daniel was known as someone with so much faith was because he never prayed for his wealth or his needs. He prayed to God every day to worship him. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10 says, Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. To summarize the background of Daniel's story briefly, he came to Babylon as a slave to work as a slave for the king. Daniel was then raised to high office by his royal master Darius, causing other people in the palace to dislike him. Daniel's jealous rivals tricked Darius into issuing a decree that for 30 days no prayers should be addressed to any god or man but Darius himself and any who broke that decree would be thrown into the lion's den. The jealous rivals did this because they knew that Daniel prayed every day to God. However, as it is stated in verse 10, Daniel continued to pray to God, knowing that he would be thrown into the lion's den. He did not change his ways and knelt down to pray to God three times a day, thanking him. Daniel did not pray, thanking God only when he was in need or asking God for something. He continued to pray to God three times a day like he had always done. He did not think of God as an Aladdin's lamp, but worshipped God and thanked Him for the almighty creator that He is. When music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come Longing just to bring something that's worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more. I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper when. I'll bring you more than a song I'll bring you more than a song
sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Why is there evil and suffering? Based on 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. I would like to ask you a question. And have you think about something. You know, one of the things I dreaded the most in high school and college was this. The pop quiz. How about you? How many of you hated that? I always felt anxious. I felt unprepared. I wished I knew what my teacher or the professor was going to talk about. It was kind of, you know, sometimes you couldn't psych them out. I mean, it's a pop quiz for land's sake. How do you, how do you know? It's, that's the pop in it, right? <laughs> I hate it when I didn't know the answers. I still hate not knowing the answer to something. It really bugs me. And you know what? It's the same with witnessing. Maybe the ultimate pop quiz comes when the skeptic asks you a question about your faith and you don't have the answer. You know, oh, I wish you would have asked me that. I could have Googled that, you know. Just a minute, I'm going to run to the restroom. And you know, you're Googling it real fast. And, you know, at this point, the Boy Scout motto fits pretty well, which is what? Be prepared, right? Be prepared. And the Bible tells us that we should always be prepared to give an answer for what we believe. And I'd like for you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3, which is way to the right in your Bible. If you, if you hit the very back of your Bible, bounce back to 1 Peter. It's right after the big book of Hebrews. You'll find it right after Hebrews. Go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, well, there's Hebrews, James, but go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter says, if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain or defend it, okay? If somebody asks us about our Christian faith, always be ready, always be what? 
ready to explain it or defend it. Uh, the ESV says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is in us. Make a defense. The word defense comes from a Greek word, apologia. Apologia sounds like what? Apology. And okay, the word apology we get from this, but this isn't talking about that kind of apology. It's, it's not to say you're sorry here. We're not supposed to be ready to say we're sorry for our faith. This word actually means to present a case in court. In other words, you've got your facts, you have your reasoning, you have your evidence, and you present it, okay? And you are looking for a decision based on the facts and the evidence and the preparation. So always be ready to present your case is what this is saying. And so defending it. At this point, Warren Wearsby comments, apologetics is the branch of theology that deals with the defense of the faith. Every Christian should be able to give a reasoned defense of his hope in Christ, especially in hopeless situations. A crisis creates the opportunity for witness when a believer behaves with faith and hope because the unbelievers will then sit up and take notice. So what should our attitude be towards those who are skeptical or who are doubting? How do you generally feel when uh, you're talking to someone, be it a relative, a friend, somebody you work with, uh, when they ask you a question about your faith? What is your, your feeling? Maybe they disagree with you. Maybe they want to argue with you. Do you feel anxious? Do you feel confused? Do you feel angry when somebody's challenged you, uh, a little defensive? Peter instructs us in the very next verse what our attitude ought to be like. Peter instructs us that we should answer them, what does it say, gang, with what? Gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. Don't blow them out of the water. Don't get mad at them. And we shouldn't be insecure if we know the questions and we're able to answer the tough questions that skeptics ask. So if your typical skeptic, if you can say anybody's typical, your typical skeptic is not some godless person, you know. They're nice people, all right? They just are skeptical. They have doubts, and we have reasonable evidences for what we believe. We're not just stupid people believing any dumb thing. We have reasons for our faith. And so we shouldn't disparage them or ridicule them or deride them or mock them as we so often hear people doing. Oh, those uh, skeptics. Oh, those. You know what? Some of you were skeptical before you believed. You know, how many were? How many of you were skeptical before you believed? Yes. Yeah, see, if, if, if somebody wasn't nice to you, you wouldn't be sitting here now. Most skeptics raise honest questions and have their understanding changed when they have their questions answered. Yet, as uh, Rusty Wright shares, some questions, he says, may be intellectual smokescreens. Once a Georgia Tech philosophy professor peppered me with questions, which I answered as best I could, 
And then I ask him, if I could answer all your questions to your satisfaction, would you put your life in Jesus' hands? His reply, expletive, no. All right? No. You know, there's a difference between skepticism and unbelief. Skepticism is open to believing, while unbelief is refusing to believe. Skepticism can involve honesty, where unbelief involves stubbornness. Skepticism looks for light. Unbelief is content to sit in darkness. So how do you deal with questions and objections to your faith that your friends or relatives or others pose? First, we've got to realize that you may have to answer the same questions over and over again. The same person can ask you the same question many different times. Have you had that happen before? You're thinking, I already answered that one for you. (laughs) Just, it's okay. It's practice, all right? It's practice for us. So, and maybe last time you didn't really have your answer together, so let them ask again. It's okay, just realize and realize that there are some questions that are basic questions that usually come up. They are basic questions that skeptics almost always ask. Secondly, pray for wisdom, okay? Pray for wisdom. The Lord promises in James 1.5 to give wisdom to those who ask him. So, I am not all wise. I'm not all knowing, and so I'm praying, Lord, please give me your wisdom. So I'm prepared to answer the same question over and over. I can pray for wisdom, and I've got to. And thirdly, pray for the hearts of people who are asking you these questions. Pray that the Holy Spirit is working in their lives in order to bring them to faith and help them understand the things of God. Often the questions that skeptics ask us are happening during a time of personal or even national or world crisis. When, uh, and that's when we need to be ready to have our answers. That's when we've got to be ready then. I'm thinking about, you know, like after 9-11 or, or after some, you know, Hurricane Katrina or these other events that have happened during these natural disasters and all. Have you noticed how many times uh, the news media, it used to be they go to Billy Graham, but he's almost 100 years, isn't that cool? Almost 100 years old. Okay, so he's not talking so much to media, but they'll talk to his son, Franklin Graham, or they turn to his daughter, Ann Graham Lotz, or to Rick Warren or somebody like that, and they, they, what do you think about this? Tell us why God would let something like this happen. You know, or there's some other kind of question, and those people are right there. They've got the answer, don't they? They're ready to give an answer for their faith. I'm so glad they're out there on the front line. But you know, their answers are generally, they're the same answers that we give. They're just prepped and ready and God gives them a much bigger platform than he gives us. Again, Rusty Wright is spot on when he says, hurting people everywhere need God. Many are open to considering him, but they often have questions they want answered before they're willing to accept Christ. I've got to say, that's okay. Amen? As Christian communicators seek to blend grace with truth 
an increasing number of skeptics may give an ear and become seekers or believers. Frankly, I think it's very important for us to be ready and willing to hear questions and not be intimidated by them. So what I want to do is over the next few weeks, I want to help equip us to be ready to give an answer for the faith that is in us, to be able to defend, to present a case, to have an apologetic, you know, going back to that Greek word. But we're going to do it with, with gentleness, okay, and with wisdom. So you're ready? You ready? Okay. Now, the first question and the first objection that you might have heard, and, and this isn't necessarily the first, you know, that everybody asks. I'm, I'm not doing it like that, but here's the first one that we'll talk about. And this is probably the most exhaustive one, and the one that we could spend, you know, uh, six months looking at. So I'm going to try to do in just a few minutes. You know, so obviously, it's just going to be kind of a thumbnail sketch. But, but the first objection is one you've probably heard, and that is, why is there evil and suffering in the world? How many of you have heard that? Why is there? You've asked that, I'm sure. And so people come and they ask this question, and it's a very valid question. And again, we're not going to put any skeptic down and say, oh, come on, they're asking that. That's a valid question. This is the single biggest obstacle for seekers. Lee Strobel uh, commissioned Barna Research, you know, they're, they're the expert pollers, to do a scientific poll of Americans. And this is the question that he had them ask. He said, ask them if you had one question to ask God, what would it be? And after the scientific survey of a sample of American adults came back, the one question they said they would ask God is, why is there pain and suffering in this world? See, that's the number one question on people's mind. That was the top response. To a lot of people, the idea of a benevolent, all-powerful God seems in conflict with natural disasters and human evil. That makes sense, doesn't it? If God didn't claim to be good, then the existence of evil would be a lot easier to explain. But God does claim to be good, doesn't he? And if God uh, were limited in power, so he was not strong enough to withstand evil, then it would be a lot easier to explain evil, but God does claim to be all-powerful. Now, I want to talk to you. I think that some of these things are going to help, okay? The first thing is I want to talk to you about God's original intent, okay? This is important. What was God's original intent in creation? First of all, it was to create a perfect world. God did not have as his intention to create a world that was full of pain and suffering, uh, sorrow, death. That was not God's original intent. After God created the world, the first book of the Bible that describes it says that it was very what? Good. It was very good. 
The evil and pain that we are experiencing was never a part of God's plan. That is point number one. Secondly, part of God's intent was to create beings with a free choice. Now, when I'm talking about beings, I'm talking about us, human beings. When God created beings, human beings, he created us with the capability of free choice. God created us so that we could freely make the choice to love him. We don't have to love him. He didn't want creatures that were forced to love him. That's really not love, is it? I mean, let, let's see. You know, you don't say, I fell in love with her when you know that she has to love you because you have forced her by some magic or potion to, I mean, come on, really? I mean, that's not romance. That's not real. If he wanted to do that, he could have created, you know, these robots like you see in these sci-fi movies, you know? Just one right after another after another and just different colored hair and, you know, different types. But we all say, I love you. I love you. Praise you. I love you. Or maybe, you know, like we're talking a lot about artificial intelligence now, aren't we? And I'm reading these articles about uh, people who are falling in love with their computers. And they say that's going to be more and more common. That they're going to, you know, computers are going to be made to look like humans. And they're going to have minds. And, and men and women are all already falling in love with, with their machines. Well, you know, it doesn't matter how much a machine could quote-unquote love you. It's not real love because it's been programmed by someone, hasn't it? And so it's a matter of the machine loving you because it's been programmed that it must love you. God didn't program us that way. We're different. We're human beings. Someone has said that, and, and I want you to, this is harsh, but someone has said that forced love is rape, and God is not a divine rapist. He will not do anything to coerce our decision. All right. God will not make you love him. He created beings that would love and serve him freely. Now, I want us to, to think about this. I want us to think about the origin, then, of evil in the world. If God created the world to be perfect, God created us to have free choice to love him, then where did evil come from in this world? How did it get started? J.B. Phillips said, evil is inherent in the risky gift of free will. You give somebody free will, a free choice leaves a possibility of a wrong choice, right? So if God gives us free choice, we could either choose the right stuff or we could choose the wrong stuff. And God certainly didn't create evil, but with free will comes the possibility of evil. What brought sin, evil, death, and pain is that Adam and Eve used their liberty but they used their free choice to freely choose the wrong thing. You know the whole Garden of Eden thing, do you? You know, God set up and he says, you know, don't eat that. If you do, you're going to die. Don't eat that 
or all this calamity is going to come into the world. You got free choice. God's not going to tell you what you make you do some. How many of you had big brother or sister always telling you what to do? Come on. Ah, and, And finally, what did you say? Stop telling me what? What to do. Stop telling me what to do. Do you like being told what to do? No. In fact, you know, reverse psychology usually works better on us, doesn't it? Do whatever you want. Oh, I really want to do that, you know. So God's not going to tell us what to do. So Adam and Eve, they chose, they used their choosers, and they chose the wrong thing. It's been estimated that 80% of human suffering stems from human choice, and the other 20% is like natural disasters and all. Suffering comes because of human choice. The source of evil is not God's power, but mankind's freedom. The source of evil is not God's power, but mankind's freedom. So a good question comes up. So somebody says, why didn't God create humans in such a way that they couldn't have made that choice? Well, that would mean that we wouldn't be human because it would be a world without humans. Though God is all-powerful, he gave us the freedom to follow him or disobey him. I know we're just kind of going back to that point of free will, aren't we? God couldn't have created a world with people who had genuine freedom, and yet there was not the potentiality of sin. Are you following me? So when you say, why couldn't he create us without the possibility of making a wrong choice, then it wouldn't have been freedom. You can't have freedom without freedom any more than you could have color without color. Or you could have a square in the shape of a circle. Well, this is a good question or a comment. I would have done things differently. Well, I'm not, don't, don't get me wrong again. Ask the questions. It's good to ask the questions, but one thing that we've got to understand is that there is an infinite difference between God and ourselves. God is a whole other kind of being, you know, if you can say that. He's different than us. God even says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, my ways aren't your ways. Kind of a way of saying, um, you guys don't exactly understand me. Lee Strobel has an excellent book. I I just want to, can I show you a couple of books without distracting from my point? I want to show you two books that I think are very helpful in in the next few weeks. One is by Lee Strobel called The Case for Faith. You see this? The Case for Faith. And so I would encourage you to get this bookstore. Didn't know I was going to say this, so they will catch up and order some of these. The other is uh, by William Lane Craig. it's called A Reasonable Response, and it's answers to tough questions about God, Christianity, and the Bible. So A Reasonable Response. These, these two books, I think, are really great. There's a lot of good stuff out there, but um, I think those, those are super good. So um, I would have done things differently from God. Well, God is different than us, and maybe this is an illustration that might help. Listen up. Imagine that a bear in a trap is found by a hunter who, out of sympathy, 
wants to liberate him. So he tries to win the bear's confidence, (laughs) but he can't do it. So he has to shoot the bear full of drugs. The bear, however, thinks this is an attack and that the hunter is trying to kill him. He doesn't realize that this is being done out of compassion. Then in order to get the bear out of the trap, the hunter has to push him further into the trap to release the tension on the spring. Well, if the bear were semi-conscious at that point, he would even be more convinced that the hunter was his enemy who is out to cause him suffering and pain. But the bear would be wrong. He reaches this incorrect conclusion because he's not a human being. And then Lee Strobel continues, I believe God does the same to us sometimes, and we can't comprehend why he does it any more than the bear can understand the motivations of the hunter, as the bear could have trusted the hunter, so we can trust God. Could you bear hearing that? (laughs) Wouldn't it be better, somebody says, if God did away with all evil right now? That is a great thought. That is a good question. And I've heard that a lot of times. Of course God could do this, right? God could right now get rid of evil and believe me, he would do a complete job of it. He could do it and he could do it right now, but that wouldn't be good for us. Paul Little pointed out, if God were to stamp out evil today, he would do a complete job. His action would have to include our lies and personal impurities, our lack of love, and our failure to do good. Suppose God were to decree that at midnight tonight, all evil would be removed from the universe. Who of us would still be alive in the morning? I want God to get rid of it right now. Well, just think about what that would mean. I want you to hear this. And this might not seem satisfying in the moment. But God's ultimate plan to get rid of evil is in the future. This is not going to run on and on and on forever and ever and ever, okay? Now, God is outside of time. Try to get a hold of that one, right? God is outside of time. He doesn't measure life by 24-hour periods. He is the I am, the Bible says. He calls himself the I am that I am. Everything's present. Everything is now with God. So God really, he's not in a place of past, present, future. It's all right now. God has a top-down view of everything. We don't live that way. So what we have to, in human terms, have to know is that God is going to take care of the problem of evil, pain, sorrow, wickedness in the future. That's God's promise. There's there's going to be a day when, when God does stamp out pain and suffering when evil people will be stamped out. Not only that, they will be judged. I hate it that guilty people get away with things. I hate that dictators can kill millions of people and seem to get away with it. But listen, folks, they are not ultimately to get away with it. A human court could punish them with all the human punishment we could mete out. And the worst thing a human court can do is sentence somebody to death. You say, yeah, well, then that guy dies, he's hung or whatever. But that person killed millions of people. It doesn't seem like the punishment 
really fits the crime. But God someday is going to mete out justice. And God, in infinite wrath, if you'll excuse me, he will bring back a Hitler. And he will say, Mr. Hitler, you didn't kill one person. You killed millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people. And now, as infinite God, I am going to infinitely punish you. And there's another topic coming, but that's what hell is all about. Justice, real justice is coming, all right? And so we believe that, we acknowledge that. That is part of the structure goes into this whole, why evil and suffering? Evil and suffering is going to be dealt with. God is going to cast it away. And in Revelation, God says, I'm going to bring about a new heavens and a new earth that's not going to have all this junk in it. Those things will be passed away. Everything will become new. That's God's plan. That plan is coming. Now, ultimately, where can our faith be anchored? I would say this is an anchor to my faith and belief. Even in, in some like this issue that I don't have all the answers, is the evidence, the pure absolute evidence that Jesus Christ died, that's a fact, that he was buried, that's a historical fact, and that he rose from the dead three days later, that is a historical fact. That can be proven, it's borne witness to, the claims of Jesus Christ are that he's the way, the truth, the life, no one can come to the Father except by him. That really happened. And if that really happened, then I can believe what the Bible says about where did evil and death came from and God's plan to deliver us from death and evil. It comes back to the reality of what the scripture says and how the Bible is validated by prophecy and how Jesus and his claims are validated by his resurrection. Jesus was clear. He said, I'll prove everything I said is true. By dying, being buried, and three days later, being raised from the dead. That's an anchor. That is an anchor. The resurrection really happened. The evidence is there. We're not talking about that today, but the evidence is really there. It's not something we put blind faith in. It's something that there is huge evidence for. And so we trust the God, the living God, the living Savior, and we put our faith in him. And that kind of brings us back to reality. I can trust God. I have an anchor. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you want us to be prepped and that you give us the equipment. You give us what we need to be ready with an answer to be ready to present our case, to not be intimidated by honest questions that are offered by people who they have a desire to know. And we pray for those, people that we know who, who are struggling with, with doubts, struggling with questions that are, they're heavy-duty questions. 
But we are glad that we don't have to run from them or avoid them or, as I've said, be intimidated by them because your word equips us. So I believe you're going to have us walk into these people, meet with these people in the next few weeks. As we do, Lord, prep us to answer. We pray for wisdom and we pray for the hearts of those we're going to speak to that they would be open, that they would see and understand the truth as it is presented in your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. Than to be the king of a vast domain Or be held in sin's dread sway I'd rather have Jesus than anything this Called the Good News of the Gospel. Hello, listeners. My name is Young Yim Winston, and you are now listening to the Good News of the Gospel. 
where we are discussing the gospel of the salvation. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Winston. During our last program of the goodness of the gospel, we studied Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and went over the important things we need to know before we study chapter 3. That's right. Let's take some time to go over those items before we move on to chapter 3. Now, in whose image were humans created? We were created in the image of a God, not only in our physical demeanor, but our God who takes care of and created everything, created man in his image that will do his work for him. Yes, that's correct. And what kinds of trees were in the Garden of Eden? In the Garden of Eden, there were trees that looked pleasing to the eye and good enough to eat. And in the center of the garden, there were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's correct. And we mentioned that there are three Hebrew words having the meaning of sin. Do you remember them? The first word is hata, and it means to move away from the target. This word is used to show that sin does not meet God's standards and that it goes against God's words. The second word is awan, and it means to twist God's words, to change and destroy God's words. That's correct. That's why it is a sin to not accept God's words just as it is and to twist it around. The third word is pesha, which means to counteract or commit treason. That's right. If we sum up the meaning of sin, it's something that does not meet God's standards, changes or distorts God's words, and something that goes against God's words. Oh, and one more thing. You mentioned that we must remember that God told Adam not to eat from the tree of knowledge. Then Adam told Eve. That's right. God told Adam which tree not to eat from. God told him that we will die if he eats from the tree. Then God created Eve, and Adam had the duty to tell Eve about not eating from the tree. Now let's read chapter 3 after knowing all these facts. I hope some of you had the chance to read over chapter 3 during the past week. If you read through the chapter, you can probably guess what we'll be discussing today. Now let's read together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the women, Indeed, as God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. This is where Satan temptation begins. Right. Now let's think about the question that the serpent asks the woman. The serpent asks the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? These words by the serpent may not seem important. It can seem like the serpent is asking the question because he really doesn't know the answer. But in his words, there lies a word that is used to curse God. That word is indeed. The word indeed is used to curse God? Yes. The question Indeed, has God said this and that, is a challenge on God's divinity that is always true. 
The Bible reminds us multiple times that there is no lie with God. Yes, doesn't Numbers chapter twenty-three verse nineteen say God is not a man that he should lie? That's right. God never lies. There is no lie when it comes to God. So to use God's name and ask a question, indeed, has God said that? Is to portray that God is able to lie. Oh, I didn't realize there was a hidden meaning. When Eve was listening to the serpent, Eve must have start to have a doubt in her heart about what God said without knowing. That was the serpent's motive for starting the conversation. Now let's take a closer look at the serpent's words. The serpent asks, "Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden?" Are the serpent's words right? Of course not. God actually told them to eat from all the trees in the garden except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's right. Even though the serpent knew that fact, what does he do? He changes and distorts God's words. This is what we studied last time: the meaning of sin, the Hebrew words "awan" to twist God's words. Yes, the serpent approaches by doing the actions of awan. Eve answers the serpent's question by saying, "From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, 'You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die.'" I think. That evil is also destroying God's word, and not repeating it just as God said. God never said to Adam that they should not touch the tree. She also says, "Or we will die." When God said that they surely die, I guess that you can say Eve just did not know the exact words. That's possible. Or Adam may not have delivered it in God's exact words. Adam could have also added to God's words as well. None of us will actually know what was said, but the important thing is that God's words were already being delivered with distortions. We discussed last time that there was first the tree of life in the center of the garden, and also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But Eve does not say. That it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She just says the tree in the center of the garden. She does not say what tree that she is referring to. That's right. Now, after the conversation that the serpent and Eve has, where they both twist around God's words, the serpent says something to Eve right away that scares her. What is it that the serpent says? The serpent says, "You surely will not die." Yes, God said you will surely die. In Hebrew, God's words "you will surely die" is written mut tamut. The serpent uses God's exact words and says in Hebrew, "ro mut tamut." The serpent changes God's words. He turns God's words around. This is an example of the third word we learned that means sin, pesha. It is to counteract or go against God's words. Yes, the serpent twists around God's words. He goes against God's words. The serpent then explains 
why he distorts God's words. Please read verse 5 for us. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Yes, the serpent says something totally shocking and far from the truth. Isn't it shocking? This is what a lie is. It's not a lie from the beginning. It changes little by little, and by the end, it becomes something totally different. If you listen to the serpent's words, he is saying that God is hiding something good from both Adam and Eve and not giving it to them. Yes, it seems like if they eat from the tree, they will become just like a God. And God did not want that to happen, so He told them not to eat from the tree. That's right. This is how they begin to have distrust in God. And how their suspicion grows. Wow! After listening to the serpent's words, it is scary how he can lie. It's just like Jesus said, the father of lies. Yes, that's what a lie is. Now, let's listen to the serpent's word. The serpent tempts Eve by saying, "You will be like God." He is saying that you will become like God, and the serpent is actually saying. You are very similar to God, but you are lacking one thing. With that one thing, you can be just like God, but God is hiding that from you. But I can tell you, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be able to tell apart from good and evil. That way, you can become just like God. But is that really true? No, it's not. Just because a human know. The difference between good and evil does not mean that they can become just like a god. God is completely different from us humans. God is the creator, and we are the creatures. How can we be like a god just because we know the difference between good and evil? That is why this misconception is so dangerous. Through misconception. People can believe that a lie is the truth. Now, Eve is forgetting something by getting tempted by the serpent. That is, that humans are made in the image of God. God, who takes care of and created everything, created man in His image that will do His work for Him. We are the dominant being that takes care of all the other creatures. Eve does not realize this fact. I see. This is how what we learned last week about how we are made in the image of a God is related to today's lesson. It is because she is tempted that she forgets to realize that she is already made in the image of a God. That's right. Now let's see how Eve changes as she is being tempted by the serpent. Please read verse six for us. When the woman saw that the tree was a good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was a desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruits and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. That's unfortunate. Eve actually eats from the tree that God. Forbids 
her to because she is tempted. Yes. Now let's think back to what we discussed last week as we look at Eve today. What kinds of trees did we say were in the garden? Okay, there are trees that were pleasing to the eye and good enough to eat in the garden. That's right. The garden already had trees pleasing to the eye and good enough to eat. God already created all that for them. But because she was tempted, how does the tree of knowledge of good and evil begin to look to her? Pleasing to the eye and good enough to eat. That's right. The words pleasing to the sight and good for food that are introduced in Genesis chapter two are the same as the words good for food and delight to the eyes. Even though God had already created trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, mankind did not recognize that. They were tempted. They felt greed in their hearts. They decided to eat the fruit that looked delightful and good for food in their eyes instead of all the fruit that God created that was already pleasing to the eyes and good for food. This relates to the Hebrew word hata, which means to move away from the target. They ate something they shouldn't have eaten. They were not able to reach God's standards. You're right. The way the serpent and Eve acted, it meets all three of the Hebrew words for sin. They twisted God's words, went against and denied His words, and did not meet God's standards. It is perfectly a sin. Yes, it's perfectly a sin. Now, as I mentioned last week, God already made judgments on sin before mankind even first sinned. He did. God said they will surely die. That's correct. Now let's think about it again. There were two different types of trees in the center of the garden. One was the tree of life. The other was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We can call this tree of knowledge by another name. What else can we call it? Since you die when you eat from it, can't you call it the tree of death? Yes. So mankind is faced with two choices in the center of the garden. They can choose the tree of life, or they can choose the tree of death. The tree of life was able to be eaten. God gave mankind the permission to eat from the tree of life, but they were not allowed to eat from the tree of death. Even though mankind knew this fact, they chose to eat from the tree of death after being tempted. This means that mankind chose on their own to take the path of death and turn away from God. Mankind made a choice to believe the words of the serpent over God. After looking at it from all aspects, you are absolutely right. In all conditions where everything is abundant and nothing is lacking, mankind decide to listen to the serpent instead of a God. They believe in the serpent and did what God forbid them to do. There is no excuse for their actions. That's right. There is no excuse for their actions. Adam can't blame it on Eve and say that Eve made him do it, and Eve can't blame it on the serpent, saying that it made her do it. Mankind made a decision to turn away from God and chose death. There is something that we touched on last week that it is possible to think, isn't it too harsh? that they die after not listening to God just once 
by eating from the tree of knowledge? Yes. There are people that may think that it is too harsh to kill someone over a small sin. Let me go over two points to answer that question. First is the meaning of death. Life came from God. The Bible tells us that God formed man from dust on the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. The source of man's life is from God. Death means to separate from God, the source of life. Death is to leave God. The one thing that we must realize is that God did not say that he will kill mankind, but he said that mankind will make the choice of death. That means to separate from God. That seems like the definition of a death. And mankind chose to take the path of death. Yes. And my second point is small sin, or something that we do wrong only once. If we take a look from our values, it is possible to say it in those words. However small the sin, we must know and follow the values of the Bible. The Bible does not tell us that it is okay for us to sin small as long as the sin is not too big. The values of the Bible are clear. He who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in something big. If you are not faithful in something small, then you cannot be faithful in something big. Oh, that's right. Jesus said, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Yes, you said it right. It's from Luke chapter 16, verse 10. If we read the Bible with the values of the world, discussing the right and the wrong, we will not be able to fully understand the Bible. We must resist all the values of the world. We must read the Bible from a clean slate. We must learn the values of the Bible to know God's plan for us. See what God wants from us and learn. We are not making the Bible follow our value system, but we must learn to make our values the same as the Bible. We must not change the Bible to fit our values, but change our values to fit the Bible. That's correct and very important to understand. What we studied in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, Eve and the serpent changed the Bible to fit their values, and that is how they were tempted to sin. They did not change it to fit the values of God. That's right. And this sin is still going on today. They're not changing to live according to God. They are changing God's words to do what they please. And if it does not fit, they twist the words around. And if it still doesn't fit, they deny and go against God's words. All this is to choose the path of death. Mankind has chosen death when given the choice between life and life. Or death. And because of their choice, they are faced with death. This is what we talked about in our first lesson how there must be bad news before there can be good news. So the bad news is God gave mankind the choice to pick life or death. Even in the situation where all was plentiful, mankind decided to follow the words of the 
serpent over God. Mankind listened to the serpent and chose the path to death, and that is how death enters all of us today. That's right. Sin is to go against God's words. Last time we discussed that God told Adam, Adam was to tell Eve what God had told him. The order should be from God to Adam and from Adam to Eve. Yes, that's what you said. We can call that an order, but in what order did sin come? Sin led to the serpent tempting Eve. Eve ate from the tree of knowledge and gave the fruits also to Adam. Oh, the order is backwards. Yes, from the serpent to Eve, and from Eve to Adam, the order changes. This reminds me of Romans chapter one twenty-six. Exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Yes, the order of sin goes backwards. The order is changed the other way. Now the bad news that we discussed today, we studied sin and the value of sin that leads to death. This bad news has entered in us. All mankind chose the path to death. They want to die. Adam and Eve had a choice, but they chose death. And all life that comes after them is born into sin, and live their lives sinning, leading to death. Who is able to save us from this life of sin? How will we be free from this slavery of sin? The answer to that is in the good news we will be discussing. We will be discussing the good news in our next lesson next week. I hope that we all take this week to think about the Jesus' grace to save us all from the bad news. This ends our program today. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to meeting you again next week. Have a great week. Thank you and have a great week. To get the attention of little kids, you must have something that they like in your hands. You have to show them something that they are interested in to get their attention. We have to reflect back on our prayer lives to see if we are like those little children. We all know that prayer is a way for us to have a conversation and relationship with God, but I think that we sometimes neglect that fact. We tend to look for God only in times of need. We call him our Lord, but often treat him as our slave. Our Father God knows our needs even better than us. That is why Jesus tells us not to ask God for all those things, telling us that's how the Gentiles, who are not children of God, asked for things and prayed. Don't all of you believe that we should pray to God, asking Him for a better relationship with Him, rather than asking Him to fill our needs? That's only if you believe in what Jesus told us. Matthew chapter six verses thirty-one to thirty-three says, "Do not worry then, saying, 'What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing?' 
for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I hope that you and I both take the time to reflect on our prayers and pray to God blessing His kingdom and His righteousness. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. So